As Riley said, this is going to be the last um, message on Exodus for 2018. And I'd be pleased if you would turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 12. One thing is, that is clear as you look at these plagues that we've been looking at for the last few weeks is that they are indeed going from bad to worse. And by the time we get to chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh and Egypt have endured nine horrible plagues. Started with blood, then moved on to frogs and gnats and flies and livestock and then boils and hail and locusts and darkness. It has gone from bad to worse for them. And yet the final plague to come that is promised and threatened in Exodus chapter 11 is without doubt the most horrendous plague of them all because it is the death of the firstborn. The angel of death will come through the city and he will automatically kill all of the firstborn in every single home in the city. This would have put fear around inside the whole nation including the Israelites. But in God's grace, here in chapter 12, we realize that yet again, in God's mercy and love, he is providing a way of escape for his people. A way of escape so that as that angel of death comes through, all the firstborns of these homes will be safe. And that's what he then promises right here in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look together at the first 13 verses. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from a sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, this message, in a wonderful way, has already been preached in song this morning. You've already placarded before our eyes the glories 
of what is contained right here in these 13 verses. I do pray then, Lord, that this message would only solidify where we've already been. Would you open our eyes to behold the glories of what is taking place in these verses? Lord, did we marvel at how you indeed made all things new. For your glory, Lord. Amen. This morning in Exodus chapter 12, we come to one of the most famous passages in the entire book of Exodus and one of the most important passages in the entirety of the Bible. And what we have here in these 13 verses in a nutshell is simply this. A glorious picture of the day when God made all things new. This was the day where everything changed for Israel. This was a moment in their history where God made all things new. This was the end of life as they had known it. And a visual representation of a complete change of their lives from here on in. It changed the life of every Israelite present. And in truth, it can change the life of us as well. Because this is indeed a picture of the day when God made all things new. Not only for them, but indeed for every single one of us as well. This book is alive. And this book speaks to us. And this day is one of the most significant days in all of history. So I have two points this morning as I want to get us straight into the text. Number one, I want us to look at what the Passover meant for the Israelites. What did the Passover mean for them? Kevin DeYoung, in a wonderful way, he talks about how the Passover for the Israelites meant a new beginning, a new freedom, and a new forgiveness. And I think that's exactly right. And so standing on his shoulders, I want to help us see that it did indeed mean a new beginning and a new freedom and a new forgiveness. It all changed for the Israelites in this moment. And then number two, I want us to look at what the Passover means for us. Because it does have meaning for us. Each and every one of us present, this text speaks to you. So this is one of these moments in Scripture where we always want to be leaning in. We always want to be paying attention, but we particularly want to be paying attention right here because we come to the most important part, I would argue, in all of Scripture because of what it is and because of what it points us to. Number one, then, what the Passover meant for the Israelites and what it meant, first and foremostly, was a new beginning, a new start for them. A new birth of something new. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You know, that can be so easily missed. And I must confess, when I read it for the first time, I really wasn't paying much attention to that. I assumed that it was all about the latter verses. And yet those verses are hugely significant because I want you to think for a moment of what the Israelite nation have been going through for the last 400 years. The last 400 years, these people have been in slavery. The last 400 years, they have been in bondage and chains as a nation. It would be like us going to slavery in 1618. And for each and every one of us then, all we've ever known in our lives is slavery. And the one thing that happens in slavery is it is not a Monday to Friday job. You know what I'm saying? It's not like Monday to Friday you're a slave, then you have the weekends off. 
You don't look forward to Christmas. You don't look forward to Easter. There's no public holidays. Each and every day is the same. You get up and you're a slave. And then you go to bed. And you get up and you're a slave. And you go to bed. It is very likely that the Israelite nation had lost all functional awareness of time. Each and every day was the same. I'm a slave. And then I go to bed. And then the next day, I'm a slave. I serve Pharaoh and I serve Egypt each and every day of my life. They may well have been aware of the seasons, which in Egypt would have just been hot and hotter. But when it comes to days, they would have just all molded into one. Each and every day, I'm a slave. But now pay attention. Now God is changing all that. He's starting something new for them and he's marking it all out with a new beginning of time. Verse 2, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It should be the first month of the year for you. He's letting them know everything's going to change after this night for you. It's all going to be different. And to mark it out, I'm going to give you a new January the 1st on your calendar. And it's going to be this month. This month that was known as Abib back then. It became known as Nisan in the future. But God wants to help them see after this night, everything is going to change. After this evening of the Passover, it's all going to be different. And I want you to understand that by giving you a new beginning in terms of time. Everything that's happened previously in your life, it's going to be very different. Your old life will have gone and your new life will have begun. And I'm going to mark that with a new start of the month on your calendar. From this time forward in Israel, Nisan will be the first month of your year. God's giving them a new beginning in terms of time. And he's also incredibly giving them a new beginning in terms of common identity as well. A fresh start, as you will. A fresh start for them as a nation. A fresh start for them as a community. Indeed, a fresh start for them, as it says in verse 3, as a congregation. Look there, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Tell who? All the congregation. You know, once again, this can be easily missed. It can be easily brushed over. But this word congregation, it occurs in the book of Exodus through to the book of Joshua. It occurs over a hundred times. And this moment is hugely significant because this is the first time in any of those books that this word congregation is used. It's the beginning of it. It's the very first time God ever calls them a congregation. And that is hugely significant because what God is doing here is giving them a new beginning, not only in terms of time, but in terms of common identity as well. See, prior to this moment, these people have been known either as Hebrews or sons of Israel. And that's it. Prior to this moment, they've only been known as either Hebrews, i.e. because of their ethnicity or ethnic grouping, they're called Hebrews. Or they're called sons of Israel, recognizing they're descendants of the patriarch Jacob, who is always also called Israel. And so that's what they're known as, as a people. You're Hebrews or you're sons of Israel. But God is saying here, no. No, no, I'm going to change that too. Because right here through this evening, through this Passover, I'm going to build you together into a new community, a new nation, indeed a new congregation, of which you will all be a part through the blood of the Lamb. He's giving them a national identity. He's launching them in this moment as the very people of God. 
You know, this word congregation in the New Testament, Testament then became known as ecclesia. And that became known as church. Literally the called out ones. People who are saved by grace and called to serve the living God. It's launched right here in Exodus chapter 12. Where God says to them, through the blood of the Lamb, it's all going to be different for you from here on in. You are going to be my congregation. My people. Brothers and sisters, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you're going to relate to each other in a different way. Have you ever wondered why in verse 4, there's that sort of weirdness that, hey, if your lamb's too big, then you're going to have to join with another family. And you're like, what's that all about? Well, God's trying to help them see it's different for you now. You are all together one family in so many ways. And so if your family can't eat that lamb, that's okay. Join with the people next door. Come together because you're now a new community, a new nation, a new congregation. Together you are my family. And so after this evening takes place, after the angel of death comes through and you are freed, it's going to mark for you a new beginning. A new beginning in terms of time. And a new beginning in terms of identity. Imagine what that would have felt like for Israel. You haven't had a common identity prior to now. And each and every day of your life, you have awoken in your life to bondage and chains and slavery. But now God's telling you, you know what? You're going to have a new identity and a new beginning. The old is gone and the new has come. Get ready, because I'm going to give you after this night a new beginning, Israel. What he also does wonderfully, number two, is give them a new freedom. He's not just starting something new with them. He is issuing them in their lives with a new found freedom like they had never, ever known before. And so he tells them they need to find a lamb, a lamb a year old without blemish. And on the 14th day of the month at twilight, the head of the home, the fathers of the home should then kill the lamb And the lamb should be sacrificed on behalf of the whole family. And then some of the blood of that lamb should be put on the two doorposts and the lintel around the entrance into everybody's home. And then they are to eat of the flesh of the lamb that night too. They're to roast it on the fire and then eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Pay attention then to verse 11. Because God tells them in verse 11 the manner in which they're to eat this. It's fascinating and it's wonderful. In verse 11, it says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. I love it. They're to eat the meal with haste. They don't have time to leaven the bread by putting yeast in it and letting it rise. They don't have time. No, they need to get ready. They need to eat this meal with haste, and they're to eat this meal with sandals on their feet and staffs in their hand and their belts fastened around their waist. Why is that? So their trousers don't fall down? I mean, what's the point of the belt? Well, in this point in history, all these people would wear tunics, in effect, robes. And what they would do is they would put a belt around their tunic and when they needed to run, they would pick up the hem of their tunic and they would tuck it in their belt so that they could run. They don't want to be tripping over their tunic. That's what you see in the, in the parable of the lost son and the prodigal son. And it says that the father was waiting and as he sees him far off, he runs to him. He picks up his tunic and puts it in his belt and runs after him. 
At this time, if you needed to run, you must have a belt and you must put your tunic in your belt so that you can run. Well, God is instructing these people, listen, you need to eat this meal with haste. You haven't got time for the bread to rise. You need to have sandals on your feet and staffs in your hand and your tunic tucked in your belts. Why? Because tonight is the night of freedom. Tonight is the night we run. Tonight is the night where we escape Israel. Tonight is the night where you as my people, I am going to free you. For 400 years, all you have known is slavery, but not after tonight. So eat this meal with haste. Get the sandals on your feet and the staffs in your hand. Get your tunics tucked in, because tonight is all about freedom. Now one can only imagine just how incredible this must have been for the Israelites. For 400 years, you've been in chains. For 400 years, you have most likely seen relatives and friends and family being beaten and whipped. Some would have been killed as they're not doing a good enough job. For 400 years, you've just done the same thing, day after day after day. If you've grown up in this, you haven't known any different all your life. But what God is saying here is, listen, tomorrow, you will have the joy of waking up and genuinely be able to make a decision. From tomorrow, it's all going to be different from you. Because tomorrow, after this night, you're going to be free. You're going to be able to wake up and genuinely choose what you do in your life tomorrow. They would know for the first time in their lives the joy of what it is to wake up and choose. They would know what it is for the first time in their lives, the joy of being daring to dream again. They would have never dreamt about anything other than slavery. But tomorrow they would know the joy of what it is to dream, to dream about what they're going to do with their lives, to dream for their kids, how they may grow up in their different lives. They would also know the joy then of being able to truly know and worship and serve the great I Am. For the first time in their lives, they'd really be able to spend time with Him, know Him and worship Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And having just seen the great I Am in action during the last nine plagues, what a thrill this must have been for them to think about. From this night forward, I'm going to be free to serve Him. For the last nine plagues, they have seen God displayed to them in His power and in His majesty and in His holiness and in His justice. They've seen God placarded before their eyes in His greatness before them again and again and again. And they've also again and again and again seen God's mercy and kindness and love and grace towards them. They would have known full well, we're still in the light here, but they're in the dark. We're still drinking water, but they're drinking blood. They would have known, this is an incredible thing. The way he feels about us and cares for us. Is this not scandalous grace? And they would have known then the joy of what it was from tomorrow to go out and serve him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to really know him for ourselves. See, look with me at verse 12. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all other gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. For I am the Lord. You see, so often we think of the Passover as God saving his people. True, but he is also executing judgment on all other false gods. 
This was the final plague. He was finally revealing to everybody who would listen, Egypt, Israel, and indeed all the nations, that I alone am the King of kings and Lord of lords. I alone am the only one that can save you. I indeed am the only one who truly exists. So in the plague of blood, God defeats the river gods of the Nile. In the plague of locusts, he defeats the field gods of the harvest. In the plague of darkness, he defeats the gods of the sun and sky and so on and so forth. Each and every plague is designed for God to make himself known to the nations and to reveal to the nations, I am better than all of your counterfeit gods. Every single one of them. Bring them out, I will beat them down. Because I alone am God. I alone am he. I alone was and is and is to come. I am. I am who I am. And the great I am. Imagine the thrill then for Israel knowing for 400 years we've been in chains. But after this night, I can go and be with him. After this night, I can know him. I can know the great I am. And I can serve the great I am. And I can worship the great I am. This for them wasn't drudgery. It wasn't like, oh, do I have to? I just wanted to do something else. This for them is pure delight. I'm no longer going to be subject to the bondage to Pharaoh. I'm going to be a slave of the Lord. I can serve the Lord who loves me and shows me mercy and grace again and again. I'm going to be free. Imagine the thrill for them as they know it's all going to change after this night. A new beginning and a new freedom. To make it all possible, God is going to give them a new forgiveness. And my friends, without this forgiveness, there would be no story. Because in all honesty, it was a forgiveness that Israel so desperately needed. See, when we think about Egypt, and we think about the Egyptians, really I think what happens to them on this evening is of little surprise. For 400 years they had kept God's children in bondage and slavery. For 400 years what they had been doing was unjust. They had even taken part in the Israelite genocide. They had literally broken into Israelite homes, taken children and thrown them into the Nile to seek to kill them all off. No one was complaining about that. Egypt has freely done that. They are sinful before the Lord and he always promised them that if you will not let my firstborn son go, I will get your firstborns. I will come after them. I will judge you as a righteous and judge and holy king of all. What happens in this moment to the Egyptians should not be a surprise to us. But what should be a surprise to us is what didn't happen to the Israelites. Because these Israelites should have suffered the same fate as that of the Egyptians. You see, God's people, make no mistake, were not devoid of sin. God's people had also sinned against him in catastrophic ways as well. And when you examine the text, you see that. And we can be lightly amused by the different points, but we have to understand that they are a sinful people before the Lord. Before a holy God. Before a God who had called them to more. See, God's people, like Pharaoh, had refused to listen to Moses and therefore had refused to listen to God. 
We often think, no, Pharaoh's the bad guy. He doesn't listen to God. Well, neither did Israel. God addresses them. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 21, um, Moses addresses the people of God. He explains to them that God is coming for you. He's going to save you by his incredible grace. He's heard your cry. He's seen your, what you're going through. He's coming after you. And so he instructs Pharaoh to let the people go, and that doesn't go great. And this is what the people of God say to Moses in Exodus 5, 21. He says, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made a stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, Moses then explains to them, hang on, stop. I'm serving the Lord here. And actually the Lord meets with Moses and gives them words, gives Moses words to say to the people of God. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7 to 8, this is God's response to the people. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. Seven times, I will, I will, I will. People, trust me, I am the Lord your God. And the verse that comes after simply and effectively says, to the people of God, to the Lord, well, I won't. I don't believe you. We're not interested. We're done. You have made our life even hard. Leave us. See, it wasn't just Pharaoh rejecting the word of the Lord. It was the people of God as well. They refused to believe. They refused to acknowledge. They refused to invoke any faith. In response to God saying, I will, I will, I will, in effect, they said, well, we won't. These people refused, like Pharaoh, to listen to God. And God's people, like the Egyptians, were also guilty of idolatry. See, I wouldn't want you to think that God's people are in Israel and they're just worshipping the great I am all the time. No, they are not. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua pulls the people of God together and he instructs them to throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua is helping the people of God understand, listen, your forefathers, those that were in Egypt, they served the false gods just like the Egyptians did. They also bowed to counterfeit gods all over the place. The sun god and the god of the Nile, the god of fertility, great. They were into it all. They wanted the great I am, but they wanted all the other gods as well. It was a pantheon of serving many, many different gods. And so Joshua helps the people understand, no more, this is wrong. They are counterfeit gods. They've got to go. But in doing so, we learn something about the people of God. They committed idolatry all their lives. They served many, many gods. For these were God's own people, God's own children. And yet, in effect, they prostituted themselves out to false gods all the time. We just want to serve all these others. We don't want to serve you. It should be staggering to us, then, that the Israelites did not suffer the same fate as the Egyptians. They were not without sin. They had sinned against the Lord as well. They had refused to listen to him and they were guilty of idolatry just like the Egyptians. 
but they didn't suffer the same fate. Why not? How is it possible that they didn't suffer the same fate? Why did they not suffer the same fate? Well, because God in his grace and mercy instead provided a way of escape for his people. He made it possible that as the angel of death passes through, there would be a way of escape for the very people of God. How is this going to be possible? Well, through the blood of a substitutionary lamb in their place. There would only be one way, namely the death of a perfect lamb. There would only be one way to escape the consequence of their sin, which would be death. And that way would be for the father of the home to nurse a lamb for four days as the family would gather around that lamb. And on the twilight of the fourth day, to slit that lamb's throat and to take that blood of the beautiful lamb and put it on the doorpost and lintel of their lives. So that as the angel of death passes through the land, that angel would understand, I don't need to go in there because a lamb has died in their place. The blood of another has been shed. God's wrath has been diverted through the blood of a lamb. And that was the only way for the people of God to escape. God didn't just let them off, oh, no big deal, never mind. No, a lamb had to be slaughtered. And through the slaughtering and sacrificial death of that lamb, through the blood that would be spread on the doorposts and lintel of their lives, all those that were remaining within would be saved. God had provided a way, a propitiation, a substitute, so that they wouldn't undergo the death that indeed they deserved. You know, for hundreds of years then, on a yearly basis, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Each and every year after this event, for one and a half thousand years, they celebrated the Passover again and again, each and every year, remembering what God had done. Each and every year, taking a lamb for each and every home, killing and sacrificing that lamb, and regarding all that the Lord had done, remembering how he had saved them by his grace, how he had given them a new beginning and a new freedom and a new forgiveness, remembering year after year, look what God did for us. We were in slavery and bondage, but through the blood of the lamb, we had started with a new beginning and a new freedom, and we were forgiven. And each and every single year of their lives, then they would gather together and celebrate the glories of the Passover lamb by reminding themselves year after year after year through a fresh sacrifice of a lamb of what God had done. And what staggers me about this scene is the incredible reality that as the pages of Scripture then continue to turn for one and a half thousand years, you realize then that these yearly sacrifices didn't then just look back, but they indeed pointed forward to the perfect, glorious Lamb to come. Every year of their lives as they gathered as families and killed the sacrificial Lamb, it didn't just point them back to Exodus. It pointed them to the reality of one to come who really would die for the sins of the entire world. And they needed Him. They needed him more than ever. See, in Hebrews 10, chapter 4, a fascinating and important verse in the Bible, we read, for it is impossible, impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. 
It's the impossible of a four-legged animal whose blood is going to die for somebody else. It's impossible that they would escape the consequence of death through the mere blood of an animal. So how did Israel escape? They escaped because this blood of the perfect lamb that was put on their doorpost and lintel in faith always pointed to one to come, a greater lamb to come, the true Passover lamb. Year after year after year, they reenacted what God had done and each and every lamb that was slaughtered always pointed to one greater lamb to come. And one and a half thousand years after Exodus chapter 12, John the Baptist is the final prophet as the last prophet of the entirety of the Old Testament, didn't just talk about this lamb to come. He pointed right at him. He pointed at Jesus and he said, Behold the lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. For one and a half thousand years, these people had been sacrificing lambs year after year after year. But John the Baptist effectively says, Hold on, this is him. This is the one that all the lambs pointed to. This is the one who will give his life away as a ransom for many. This is the one who has come to die for the sins of the entire world. And Jesus Christ himself told us that that is true. He indeed had come as the perfect and spotless lamb. That's why he needed to be born of a virgin Mary. Because sin, ultimately, by seed form, was always being passed down from our fathers. So who is his father? The Holy One of Israel, God himself. He then lived a perfect and spotless lamb life. And then, three years after John the Baptist pointing out that this was the Lamb of God, three years later, at twilight, on the day of the Passover, he gave his life as a ransom for many. While all of Israel was gathered in their homes with the dads. Oh, it's getting dark. It's time to kill a sacrifice. Jesus, that very same day at twilight, was hanging on a cross, bleeding out. Giving his life away as a ransom for many. As the perfect Passover lamb. Making it possible for us to escape judgment. And instead have life and that in abundance. Now for the Israelites, the Passover meant a new beginning. It meant a new freedom and it meant a new forgiveness. And yet these Passover lambs, they always pointed to Jesus. They always pointed to a greater lamb to come, one who would truly take away the sins of the world, one who alone would make it possible for the angel of death to pass by and for us to go free. And it's because all those Passover lambs ultimately pointed to Jesus that this scene here in Exodus chapter 12 has so much meaning for us as well. Because they all point to Jesus, our true Passover lamb. And it's through him then that everything is made new for us as well. So what does the Passover mean for us, just in closing? What the Passover means for us is the same as that which it meant for Israel, for Egypt, sorry, for Israel. The Passover for us, what it means, number one, is that through Jesus, our Passover lamb, we have a new beginning, a new start. Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. He's helping us see that, listen, when we in our lives put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, through faith we're putting the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts and lintels of our lives. And as we sit then in that home, what God's telling us is, I've made you a new creation today. I've given you a new beginning. What has ever happened in your past, I remember it no more. I'm giving you a fresh start now, a new beginning, a new date of your life. For you from this moment on are going to be born again. You'll have two birthdays, the day you were born and the day you were born in the Spirit. It's all going to be new. Through the blood of the Lamb, I'm giving you a new beginning. And through Jesus, our Passover Lamb, I'm also going to give you a new freedom. And my friends, it's a freedom we so desperately need. Because it is a freedom to truly know and worship and serve the Lord in a way that in our sin, we never can. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're able to know the Lord and worship Him and serve Him in a way that we never can without the blood of the Lamb around the doorposts of our lives. See, God in His grace, He didn't just save us to draw us out, to then do the sort of Aussie or British or American dream, which means I'm free to do whatever I want. But that isn't classed as freedom at all. That's like an individual who jumps out of a plane without a parachute, on the premise, I just want to be free. You are crazy. What God did in his grace is he said, I'm going to save you from your bondage of sin, to open your eyes to the reality of who you really are, and whose you are, and what your life is all about. You will know me as your creator. You'll know me as the powerful, sovereign, loving, merciful God that I really am. And when you see me face to face, you will want for nothing else. So I'm removing you, I'm drawing you out of Egypt to draw you into my presence where you can know me and worship me and serve me. That's why Paul himself in Galatians 5 verse 1 says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom for what? Freedom to serve the living God. Free to know God. Free to serve the Lord. And free then to know who you are and whose you are and what your life is about and where you're going. True, genuine freedom. And through Jesus, our Passover lamb, we also gloriously receive a new forgiveness. Romans 3.23 is clear. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by nature then, we are objects of his wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve ultimately death, which is what he always assured us would be the consequence of our sin, both now and in eternity. But when we put a faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and in doing so, we put the blood of the Lamb around the doorpost and lintel of our lives, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 7, Therefore, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He makes it clear for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is the blood of the Lamb now around your lives through which God says, I forgive you. I see that somebody else has died in your place. The spotless, perfect Lamb, my own Son, has died in your place. So you're forgiven. The consequences of your sin is dealt with by another. So freely go. A new beginning, a new freedom, and a new forgiveness. You know, I still remember the day when I was born again. See, growing up, 
I was very much Mr. Facing Both Ways, as John Bunyan once called it. I was in the church on a Sunday. Great. And I'm in the world in a week. That was also great. And I served, like Israel in Egypt, many, many gods. I wanted to serve the Lord, but I also wanted to serve the God of um, immorality. I wanted to serve the God of understanding. I wanted to serve the God of appreciation and approval. I had loads of things that I wanted to achieve in my life. And at the age of 20, my counterfeit gods let me down. And my life came crashing down. I'd got engaged to a girl. I hadn't sought any counsel. Why do I want to do that? I'm always right in my own eyes. Done my own thing. Left university at 19. Bought a house, couldn't afford, but we bought it on her salary. She left me. Oops. Bought a car, couldn't afford that. My life was an absolute mess and everybody knew it. It all came crashing down in my life. And I remember at 20 years old, leaning against a radiator, a hot water system in the UK because it was freezing, it was late at night. And I was just weeping, wondering what on earth I was going to do in my life. And I never forget the moment because it was in that moment that grace became amazing to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. In a moment, that verse came alive to me. I realized he died for me. And oh, how I need him. So there I was, I was just leaning against this radiator, weeping, and grace was opening up before my lives, and I just said, Lord, I want to follow you. I repent of my sin, and I put my faith in you. And in that moment, I began to experience a new beginning. I mean, I was just ecstatic. I realized my old is gone, and the new has come. He's changed my life. I I knew a new freedom in my life. And I knew a genuine forgiveness as I realized Jesus has died in my place. Listen, you didn't have to then put me under duress and say, okay, from here on in then, you're going to need to go to church and you're going to need to serve Jesus and you're going to do all these things. I awoke from my dungeon, my dungeon flamed in light, and I couldn't wait to serve Jesus. I was just amazed by grace. I could not believe you died for me to give me a new beginning to give me a new life, to give me genuine forgiveness. And I wanted to serve him each and every day of my life, not necessarily as a pastor, although that's what happened in my life. I just wanted to serve him because I loved him. It changed my life. The day when I was born again and experienced then a new beginning and a new freedom and a new forgiveness. You know, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And so you can't say that yet. You haven't experienced this new beginning or a new freedom or new forgiveness. This isn't you, not yet. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you then. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what you need to do. He passionately loves you, but you have wronged him. He is holy and righteous and justice, and he can't just say, oh, well, never mind, no big deal, come back. No. The consequences of your sin are the spilling of blood. But God so loves you that he said, if you put your faith in my son, that I will pass the doorposts of your life by. My friends, I want to encourage you that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, through faith, put the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost and lintel of your life. Because it's then you will know the life that I truly speak of. Everything changes because he changes everything. And if you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
I want to encourage you, my friends. Never lose sight of the glorious Passover lamb in your story. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were in your home and the angel of death was approaching. And you were going to be judged. And righteously so. And you were dead. You didn't care. You weren't interested. You were blasé about it. But at the right time, God sent forth his son. As the angel of death began to approach your home, God sent forth his son and he said, I will sacrifice him. He will shed his blood. And if you will put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, then the angel of death will pass you by. My friends, in your story then, never, ever, ever forget that. That's why you're here. That's why you're worshipping as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's why you know this forgiveness and adoption that heaven is your home. You're really not that special. But the Passover lamb is gloriously special. So never forget the day when you put the blood of that lamb around the doorpost and lintel of your life. And don't let a day go by where you don't spend some time looking at that doorpost and lintel. Aware that I'm only here because of his blood. I'm only forgiven because of him. I'm only adopted because of what he's done for me. And heaven is only my home because of his blood that has been shed on my behalf. Never, ever lose sight of that story. And would all then glory and all gaze, even more so at Christmas, would all gaze then go unto him, the true Passover lamb. Let's pray. Lord, what we have just studied and examined together is scandalous grace. Lord, we were just like the Egyptians... Just like Israel, we have served so many false gods in our lives. And Lord, you've called us to repent many times in your word, and yet so often we've refused to listen uninterested. Sometimes even in brandish horror, just just describing that maybe you don't even exist. And yet you have forbeared with us. You have overlooked things. And in your grace, you provided a Passover lamb for us. Lord, thank you for coming after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And Lord, more even than that, for each and every one of us in the room, Lord, thank you for calling our names. Thank you that the lamb visited our homes. And thank you that the lamb then humbly and hungrily and in love for the world, gave up his life freely. 